Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Native American Studies. I'm Andrew Epstein. Thanks for listening to this podcast for the New Books Network. Each month, we pick a newly published work in Native American and Indigenous Studies and spend the hour speaking with the author. I want to open with a quote. Here we go. I have little or no faith in the American Christian civilization's methods of healing the Indians of this country. It has not been honest, pure, or sincere. Black deception, damnable frauds, and persistent oppression have been its characteristics, and its religion today is that the only good Indian is a dead one. No, this is not from a manifesto of the American Indian movement. This is Ellie Parker, the 19th century Tonawanda Seneca, who for a few short years after the Civil War served as the first indigenous commissioner of Indian affairs. Yes, this is a top federal official labeling the U.S. government, his former employer, the purveyor of black deception, damnable frauds, and persistent oppression. Granted, Ellie Parker wrote these words over a decade after being maneuvered out of office by forces of racism and dispossession, the so-called friends of the Indians who came to dominate policy in the late 19th century. But that a character like Ellie Parker even served as commissioner hints at the possibilities of the Reconstruction era what Eric Foner called America's Unfinished Revolution. Today, I'm thrilled to say I'll be joined by Joseph Jenatin Palawa, author of Crooked Path to Allotment, the Fight over Federal Indian Policy After the Civil War, just out from the University of North Carolina Press and the First People's Publishing Initiative. As Jenatin Palawa masterfully relates, the 19th century was not one long, inexorable march toward dispossession. Such a story, even when told with all tragic gravity, is just too simple. Letting the colonizers off the hook for impulses they could not control nor reflect upon. Yet figures like Parker, Thomas Bland, and others developed, debated, and agitated for viable policy alternatives to allotment and forced assimilation, even winning some key battles while losing the war. Their struggle is essential to reckon with. I hope you enjoy our discussion. Joseph Jenatin Palawa, welcome to New Books in Native American Studies. Thanks so much for joining me today. Hi, Andrew. Thank you. Sure. So uh, I've been a big fan of yours personally ever since you introduced yourself at the Native American and Indigenous Studies Association conference in June and said that you were a regular listener. But now I'm happy to report I'm also a big fan of yours intellectually uh, after the publication (laughs) of this new book. Because, uh, you know, it would have been awkward if the, if the book wasn't as awesome as it was. But um, it is. It's called Crooked Paths to Allotment, the Fight Over Federal Indian Policy After the Civil War. It's just released from the University of North Carolina Press and the First People's Publishing Initiative. And um, before we dive into the rich material here, uh, I want, of course, to first ask you to introduce yourself and then and talk a bit about how you came to write this particular book. What What drew you to Native history more broadly and... Uh, these stories in particular. Yeah, well, so so, <laughs> thank you for all of the kind words. Um, I, 
I, I don't know if anybody's ever described themselves as a as a personal fan of mine um, in such a way, but I really really appreciate that, um, and and I appreciate the kind words that you that you said about the book. Um, I'm currently an assistant professor of history at Illinois College. Um, I received my PhD in 2008 from Michigan State University, um, where I worked with Susan Sleeper Smith um, and Maureen Flanagan among others. Um, so I became interested in, um, I've always been interested in, in, in law and policy and politics. Um, originally when I went to college, I envisioned going on to law school. Um, but along the way I had some really incredible history professors, um, including, um, a, a man named Ed Danziger, um, who, uh, took his undergraduate classes to visit the Walpole Island First Nations community uh, in Ontario. Um, and that was a transformative experience for me. I ended up going back to Walpole um, many times, um, spending time in the Heritage Center, um, studying, uh, taking uh, Anishinaabe Moen classes. And it was, it was at Walpole where I think I, I began to understand the, um, the connection, the, 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 the living legacy of, of uh, the history of this continent. Um, and the indigenous history of this continent um, in a way that I hadn't understood it before. It, that really brought it home for me. Um, and, and I think that that was what inspired me to, to move forward um, in, in, in indigenous studies and, and native history. Um, more specifically for this book, I actually in, envisioned writing a, a book about allotment. Um, and uh, in particular, writing a book about the National Indian Defense Association, an organization that challenged the Friends of the Indian, challenged Henry Dawes, and the other advocates of uh, dispossession um, and coercive assimilation. Um, ultimately, those, those individuals in that organization make up a part of the book, but as I think often happens when we study history in these ways, um, I started asking questions about where, where did, where did the, the ideas that formed the, the, the foundation of the National Indian Defense Association's um, platform come from? Um, you know, who, who had talked about these things previously. Um, and so I started questioning and looking, um, looking back in time. Um, and that brought me to the, the, the peace policy era um, and the era uh, immediately following the Civil War. Um, and, and so ultimately what I envisioned being a, a book that would have been set primarily in the late 19th and early 20th century became a book about the mid-19th century. It's it's interesting because you know allotment is not the first choice you would think, uh, given that it's 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 well tread academic terrain. But this is not the book about allotment we we usually see. Certainly not the one we see in history surveys or or mainstream textbooks. You write instead about uh, paths not taken, moments that reveal alternative possibilities that existed in the development of U.S. colonialism or what might have been moments in which power was questioned, policies debated an uncontested progress well contested. Uh, why is this a story you wanted to tell? And did you go into it assuming, thinking you might find these alternatives, or were you surprised by them? Yeah, the, the language of alternatives came later. Um, I think initially it was a much more... It was a much more organic thing. I was reading this older, as you say, well-established literature, well-tread um, ground on allotment, um, and, I, and I kept running up against some um, conceptual uh, constructions, essentially, that, that, that seem to pervade the literature. So the idea that to be 
quote, to be pro-Indian was to be pro-assimilation and pro-allotment. Um, that's a you know something that you that 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 pervades that literature. The friends um, of the Indian, right? The friends of the Indian, um, or if there was any debate at all, it was between the military and military strategy and humanitarian strategy. But on on some level, I I would I, I was running across in in my research um, and just in in my graduate study more generally, uh, indigenous leaders who were obviously arguing strongly against allotment. Um, and against continued dispossession um, and against uh, coercive assimilation, um, and and I had I, I started to question that there had to be others, there had to be individuals who were actually within the mainstream systems of governance, um, people who were working within the federal government um, who questioned these directions. Um, it, it it didn't seem to me possible that 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 everybody thought this was a good idea, um, and that was what led me first to uh, Thomas Bland and then later to Ely Parker. Obviously, somebody like Collier um, uh, is an interesting and controversial character who, who fits into this framework in some ways, although I think that I felt less comfortable dealing with him um, in great depth, which is why he appears in the epilogue of the book as opposed to a section of uh, all of his own. Um, but really, you know, finding, finding individuals like Bland um, and, then, and then starting to read Parker's writings, not what has been written about Parker, um, which I take issue with a lot of it, um, but rather reading Parker's own writings. Um, and uh, that was kind of what pushed me into thinking about um, paths not taken, mm. uh, finding uh, coalitions building around um, alternative ideas. Um, was 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 a really it was it was an eye opening um, experience and I thought that that was the story that that hadn't been told in that literature right because you would also you know if if I were to say you know you know I'm writing a book about resistance to allotment I think what would come to mind would be uh, martial resistance you know fighting uh, the cavalry on the field you know um, the the resistance of of the so called Indian Wars but instead you're interested in um, in politics going on. In Washington, I mean, and elsewhere as well, but you know, you're featuring what would you call genuine or viable alternatives uh, to coercive assimilation and dispossession. Though you don't obviously imply that uh, the martial resistance going on in the West was uh, out of place necessarily. But how are you defining uh, genuine or viable here? Yeah, so so that's a term that comes from um, a, a body of, of thought in political science, um, American political development. Uh, and the idea is um, for something to be a viable alternative, it has to, in a sense, have legs. It has to, um, it has to have support. Um, there, there, there are all sorts of ideas um, that emerge in these sorts of political debates um, that are stillborn or um, that, are, that are otherwise um, not exactly viable. Um, for me, a viable, a viable alternative um, has to have... Um, Support within mainstream structures of governance, um, and and those, the 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 ideas that I talk about um, during the the Reconstruction era, um, and then again in the, the later 19th century that that Ely Parker and Thomas Bland championed, I think fit that description. There were um, significant um, policymakers, activists, and others who supported these ideas. These were not eccentric outliers. Um, these were viable. These were viable ideas that were actively then repressed. You take another, uh, develop another term from that political science literature. It's 
a, a political entrepreneur. You know, when I read that, I'm, I'm thinking of Karl Rove, uh, but that's, I'm <laughs> sure that's not what you had in mind. It's just that's the, the election had. season is upon us. What do you mean by a political entrepreneur? Right. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so this is an this is an idea again that comes out of American political development and and comes out of political science um, of an individual who uh, who seeks to consolidate power around themselves but but really operates in much the the way that we might understand um, an economic entrepreneur to act right um, who will act individually but works to um, works to strategize and seize moments of opportunity essentially, um, works to frame issues um, and develop agendas that, uh, that, that can transform policies uh, or institutions. Oftentimes, these individuals do not have immediate success. And I think that's also why um, somebody like Parker or Bland sort of fits this description. Um, these men lost most of the battles they fought in their lives. Um, but ultimately, I think that their ideas continue on beyond their own, their own lives. Mm -hmm. um, you know, particularly their, their their opposition to coercive assimilation um, and dispossession, and their support for um, issues related to sovereignty. Hmm. And I want to return to to both these characters and, and get you to introduce them a bit more formally a little bit later. But uh, as as you've mentioned, those are ideas that you're drawing from a literature on American political development, but you're also situating this book uh, in the context of, of post-colonialism and studies on settler colonialism. Uh, I'm not terribly familiar with American political development, but I would imagine that many, uh, that not many in the field uh, place the development of American politics and statecraft in the context of ongoing settler colonialism, that see that as the structure um, of American politics. Why did you merge these frameworks for this study? And, and more importantly, why can't you separate American political development from the broader processes of colonialism when you're talking about uh, American Indian history? Yeah, th th that's a great question. And I think um, that there's some really interesting work that's being done. I'm, I'm by no means am I the first person to, to look to these two particular um, bodies of theory and bodies of thought in American political development and post-colonial um, critique and post-colonial scholarship. Um, you, Kevin Braniel is one who comes to mind, who's uh, incredibly influential in, in, in my conceptualization. Um, you know, Jackie Rand's work, um, fits in here as, as well. I think um, it, it, it seems odd at first, and, and I think that I, I lay this out in the book, that American political development does tend to think east to west. Um, it has an east to west orientation where um, uh, uh, post-colonialism post or, or, or settle, settler colonial studies um, in North America tends to think west to east. Um, but I think that the, the larger idea is, is that um, is that colonial rule, that settler colonialism and American democracy were not mutually exclusive. Um, and in fact, may have been, and, and as these individuals, and I argue, mutually constitutive, were mutually constitutive. Hmm. Brendan Lindsay is another one um, who maybe not so overtly, um, but, but talks in these terms. Hmm. So in tracing the backstory to the political debates that are uh, really the centerpiece of the work, the key concept um, you talk about is confinement. And I think even, and if I'm not mistaken, that was the original title of your dissertation, right, was Confining Indians. Yes, correct. Um, so 
I think even folks with a basic knowledge of Indian history would be familiar with uh, confinement in space and territory, reservations, prisoners of war camps, etc. Uh, but you and people like Kevin Bernil also raised the concept of confinement in time and confinement in law. What do you mean here? Why is that, a, why is that a, an important concept for you and the backstory to these debates going on in the 1870s and 80s? Yeah, so I think that for, for me... <clears throat> Uh, so, so oftentimes when you, when you, when you, when you, uh, when you hear people using a, using a, a spatially based, um, term, oftentimes you hear containment, um, containment is the term that, 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 that is often used. I think, um, for me, confinement is, is a, is a broader term. It's, it, it's, uh, more, it encompasses more, as you say. Um, and I think that for, for someone who's trying to understand late 19th century reformers, um, it's important to grasp the the development of the 19th century, um, the development of Indian affairs across the 19th century. And again, I'm thinking about this from um, from the perspective of policy and law. Um, you know, there there is uh, it. it there's all in the, the existing literature um, defines this almost as a as a linear mm-hmm. pathway um, from removal um, through reservation policies and the development of reservation policies um, and ultimately to allotment. Essentially, a linear path with mm-hmm. with little um, uh, derivation, very very little um, discussion. Um, and, and there's an there's a, a tone of inevitability to it. Mm. Um, I think that thinking. In those terms, I think flattens a lot of the complexity of these eras, um, and that's really what I'm trying to do when I talk about um, confinement in time and uh, politics and the law as well. Um, it's important to think about the ways in which sovereignty, um, as a legal concept, changes throughout the 19th century, um, and the ways in which a settler colonial government employs a, uh, a fluid definition of sovereignty as a weapon. Mm. Um, uh, and, uh, so I think that that's particularly significant. Um, I think also though, um, it's important to, to think about the limits of confinement. Um, uh, and this is something that, that, that you're familiar with in the work that you do as well. Um, that, uh, as much as we might think about confinement and, um, dispossession and assimilation as, as limiting processes, they were also limited processes. Um, and that there were there there was space and there were opportunities um, for indigenous leaders and others to operate. Um, you know these these uh, these moments are particularly interesting. They're rupture points. They're disjunctures. Um, uh, I think I use the term I use the term constitutive moment. Mm. Right? Moment when a previously um, what was previously sort of status quo no longer was status quo. Um, when individuals questioned. Um, policies and ideas. Um, so I think that it's important to also consider the, the limits of confinement. Hmm. So one place that you explore that in, in um, the first section of the book, uh, or I guess the second chapter, but before we get into the debates around uh, Indian policy in the post-Civil War period, uh, is the removal crisis at Tonawanda, the Seneca, one of the Seneca reservations uh, in western New York. 
again, it's not a removal crisis that I think most people would be familiar with. They think of the Southeast, the Cherokees, the Creeks, the Trail of Tears. Uh, but you draw our attention here to another and ultimately uh, unsuccessfully unsuccessful attempt or, or a not fully successful attempt to ethnically cleanse, to remove uh, Senecas from Western New York. And this is a fight where Ellie Parker, uh, who is a central character here, really gets his chops uh, in navigating federal and state policy and, and learning how to develop viable alternatives. Uh, tell us a bit about the, the fight against removal in, in Tonawanda. I know it's a, it's a big story and, and you could kind of start anywhere, but um, I guess I'm, I'm curious about it as a testing ground or a training ground uh, for Ellie Parker. Yeah, and that gets, that gets right to the heart of the issue, actually. So I, I focus on um, the, the removal effort and the, and the uh, fight against removal as a political education for Ely Parker, which he would then use later um, his experiences in Western New York, um, uh, in his homeland, um, on the broader national stage. Um, and so there's, there's a, a, an incredibly um, fraudulent treaty, the Treaty of Buffalo um, Creek in 1838, um, that, uh, that that sets off uh, a period um, of uh, of a removal um, effort by the Ogden Land Company. Um, Parker is a very young man when this when this treaty is signed. Um, he we most believe that he was born around 1828. Um, so it's not until he's about 16 years old that he gets involved. Um, he is uh, fluent in um, uh, in both. Uh, English and Haudenosaunee, um, and is able to serve as an interpreter first um, for Seneca leaders in Albany and, and Washington, D.C., um, those who are protesting the treaty and protesting um, the Ogden Company's efforts to remove the Tonawanda. The, the political consequences in western New York of this removal crisis for Seneca people is significant. Um, and several people have, have written about this, Lawrence Hauptman uh, among them um, and others. Um, but it does, it, it it is reflective of the larger removal efforts in the Southeast in that the state government, the federal government and the private company, the Ogden Land Company are all um, involved and they all employ a, essentially a divide and conquer strategy, um, a, exploiting divisions, um, and, and, and factionalism, um, wherever it exists. Um, Parker uh, serves first as an interpreter, um, but then later, as he, as he um, becomes a, a, a young adult, um, starts uh, speaking in his own, in his own right. Um, there's a lot of behind-the-scenes things going on as well. Um, clan matrons, um, and, and others are working behind the scenes, but Parker becomes a spokesperson, essentially, mm. um, who as a very young man, a 17, 18-year-old man, um, is traveling sometimes on his own to Washington to meet with congressmen um, and others. Um, from Parker's perspective, he learns some, some, some interesting things during this land dispute, uh, land, um, removal um, effort. Um, one of them is unique, I think, to the Western New York State and uh, environment of land holding there. Local white settlers um, in the 1840s and early 1850s sign many petitions and memorials on behalf of the Seneca. There's a larger history of 
um, uh, eastern New York State land companies um, owning large chunks of, of the western parts of the state, again, fraudulently and uh, in incredibly fraudulently. Um, but local white farmers, local settlers, um, see the Seneca as uh, rightful owners of this land um, and, and, and band with them. This sets Parker up to imagine cooperation and collaboration, I think, in ways that later in the 19th century when he's focused, um, when he's working to develop policy that's going to affect the, you know, the, the west of the Mississippi, the Great Plains and others, where he's not going to experience the same kind of collaboration. The, the settlers there are going to certainly be different mm -hmm. than the western New York state. As they were in the, in the southeast, I mean, the idea of a Georgia settler signing a petition to protect Cherokee land and, and uh, you know, and, and what became Western Georgia is, is, is you know, would just wouldn't happen. Uh, and yet you find this um, surprising coalition going on in, in upstate New York. I found that uh, totally fascinating and yeah. surprising. I really did not expect that. Well, and, and so I, I don't want to take that too far, though. I mean, you know, the, the, the Seneca um, are leading this campaign. Um, but they do get this unlikely support, as, as, as you say. Um, and, and it's important, and I think it's important um, because it does set Parker up, I think, to, to, to perhaps um, misunderstand or, or expect something to happen later that doesn't happen um, when, he, when he starts to work on the federal level. Um, but he comes up, he's a, he's a condoled chief, um, uh, and is in 1851, um, and... Uh, he ultimately ends up working for, um, first, he works in the Erie Canal. He studies law. Um, he, he wants to practice law, but is um, denied access to the New York State Bar. Um, he, he works, as I said, um, on the Erie Canal, ends up working for the, the U.S. Uh, Treasury Department as, an, as a civil engineer, building, building customs houses. Um, and uh, spends time in Virginia, uh, Michigan, um, Illinois, where he meets uh, U.S. Grant um, following the Mexican War, um, and uh, continues to advocate on behalf of the Seneca, going back to Washington, D.C. at various points, um, ultimately in 1857, helping to negotiate um, uh, a, a deal in which uh, the Seneca were able to use some of the money that was set aside for removal to actually purchase back from the Ogden Land Company their own homelands, um, which is, uh, you know, in some ways, a, a, I think, a, a tragic story, obviously. In other ways, it's a different story than we would see, as you said, in the southeast. Um, the Seneca remain, uh, the, the Tonawanda remain in their, in their homelands, or at least uh, partially. Um, and that's in, in large part the result of this fight. Mm -hmm. He's also uh, becomes connected to Lewis Henry Morgan during this fight, right? I mean, this is the the father of modern anthropology. I know you don't, you know, that's not a, a huge relationship for for you in this story, but you do call their relationship some symbiotic in a way. It's it's interesting that that uh, he's also developing this this connection to uh, someone like Morgan. Yeah, you know, um, actually, in an earlier version, an earlier draft of this manuscript, there's a. I spend a lot more time talking about the Parker and and Morgan relationship. Mm -hmm. Many people have written about this, um, and it, it it is an interesting relationship. But you know, Parker Parker becomes 
in a lot of ways, Morgan's first and most important informant um, early on. Um, you know, there's even some discussion as to, you know, how much of, of some of Morgan's early work did maybe Parker actually write. Mm. I think that uh, it is it is symbiotic in the sense that Morgan um, helps Parker and the Seneca to mobilize some of those white settlers um, during the, the during the Buffalo Creek um, Treaty period. Um, so there, so there's this the 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 farmers and settlers the the um, who signed the petitions and memorials, but there's also a group of um, sort of intellectuals and lawyers, um, non-native intellectuals and lawyers who get involved on on the behalf of the Seneca. Um, and, uh, and and it helps to mobilize some of that. Hmm. I imagine to some, I mean, I'm probably there are some that are motivated by uh, romanticized notions. Um, I would imagine, or at least, you know, someone like Morgan and, and what Phil Deloria has written about him. But it's interesting that Parker could use that uh, to his advantage in some of these fights. And, and 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 this goes back to Parker, I think, being a political entrepreneur. And I and and I, I could have I think perhaps brought that out even more than I do in the book. Um, you're absolutely right. Um, and in fact, in some of the most some of the most interesting of Ely Parker's writings um, from this time period in his life, he's almost I want I want to say that he's that he's making fun of Morgan um, mm. in some of his letters and and some of his diary entries. Um, he talks about um, in in some um, he talks about Morgan and others um, trying to uh, cross a stream, for example, and falling into it. Um, and, he, and he talks about how, you know, for these, um, you know, m- members of this, you know, society of, uh, I'm, I'm blanking on the name of Morgan's. Uh, oh, I, I can't remember. The League. No, it's not the League. It's the or- Order or something. It, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a fraternal. It's, it's sort of, a, it's almost like a Masonic organization in a way. Essentially, but, but, but but filled with this romanticized Indian imagery, right? They practice these in Indianation ceremonies. Right, right. right. Where they literally come to embody um, deceased um, uh, Haudenosaunee warriors and things like that. Um, Parker actually provided some of the, the vocabulary that they use in those ceremonies. Um, and, 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 then, and, and then in letters to his brother, he makes fun of them. Oh, that's yeah. fascinating. Um, so Parker uh, ends up in Washington. Uh, he, I mean, after his removal fight and his, his Civil War service, and he's a, a close aide of uh, Ulysses S. Grant. Uh, you actually see him briefly in Spielberg's Lincoln. I wish he had a speaking role, but uh, he at least is there. Um, but after the Civil War, uh, he ascends the ranks of federal Indian policy at a very unique historical moment, uh, Reconstruction or America's unfinished revolution, as Foner would have it. So why is this moment so fruitful uh, and important for building the viable alternatives to confinement and dispossession that, that Parker articulates in his reign as, as the first and only until much later uh, indigenous commissioner of Indian affairs? Yeah, so let me pick up... Um... With with Parker, I, I mentioned that he meets uh, Grant and becomes friends with Grant um, in Illinois. Um, once the when the Civil War begins, um, Parker petitions uh, in New York State um, for a commission, and uh, and he's denied that commission. He gets in touch with Grant, and Grant ultimately brings him in. 
Um, so he serves from, from Vicksburg through the end of the war with Grant. After the war ends, he stays on. He's mustered out of the military as a brigadier general, but stays on as Grant's aide-de-camp um, and essentially his personal secretary. Um, it's actually Parker who, who writes the surrender agreement at Appomattox Courthouse. Um, the, the story goes that he was the only one whose, whose hand was, um, uh, was calm enough. To, to actually to, to actually use the quill and ink. Um, after the war, he travels a, across the South um, with Grant, um, and then, as you say, works his way into the the Office of Indian Affairs. It's something that he had wanted to do um, for a long time. Um, his aspiration was to work in um, Indian Affairs on the national level. Um, he becomes a peace commissioner um, for a number of an important a number of important. Um, uh, treaty commissions um, and, and uh, peace councils in the West and South, um, which, which is, I think, really important in his own development from, you know, moving from uh, Tonawanda to thinking more nationally. I think the bigger issue that you're asking about, though, is why Reconstruction? What is it about that moment? Um, and it's a great question. In the aftermath of the Civil War, the individuals who had sacrificed so much um, wanted to to believe that it was for something. Um, uh, historian um, Hannah Rosen, um, uh, Heather Cox Richardson, another historian Mark Summers have all written about the optimism of the immediate post-war era. Um, they focus primarily, uh, well, Richardson focuses on the West, the others focus on, on the South. Um, this becomes a moment in which individuals are willing to try things that they had previously been unwilling to try. I think that Parker recognized that. I think that traveling around um, with Grant and his inner circle and working with um, radical Republicans um, in, in Congress, meeting the, these individuals, working with them, I think that he felt that this was a moment in which um, the, the larger trajectories of dispossession course of assimilation could be questioned, um, could be uh, uh, approached in some different ways. Um, I don't want to suggest that Parker imagined uh, westward expansion of the United States ending or something like that. Um, he certainly didn't envision um, a... Um, he, he certainly had a, a complicated view of separate sovereignties, um, but he believed that um, coercive assimilation and um, dispossession were... Uh, dispositions by any means necessary were uh, incredibly problematic. He believed that indigenous homelands needed to be protected, they needed to be clarified in, in law, um, and, that, uh, and that native people needed to be given opportunities um, to, uh, to assimilate or not um, of their own choice, and on their own time frame, too. He advocated slowing down this process. Um, and uh, and giving Native people um, an opportunity to choose um, to what extent they wanted to engage with um, settler society. This obviously uh, creates enemies in uh, Eastern philanthropic circles, in elite policy circles. Um, who were Parker's enemies? Why did they uh, circle around him? And, and were they successful? 
Yeah, so Parker comes into the Office of Indian Affairs as commissioner. Um, he was appointed in 68 after Grant's election and, and comes in in 69. Um, at the same time, the Board of Indian Commissioners is established, which is one of these elements of the peace policy. It's a, supposed to be a group of men um, who are um, eminent in their philanthropy, um, who will serve without any, um, without any pay or anything, um, and essentially serve as an oversight committee. Um, monitoring the, the purchase and distribution of annuity and tr treaty goods, um, which in, in theory seems like a, a good idea. Um, the, the men who are selected, interestingly, re uh, all represent either uh, or were involved in directly or indirectly transportation industries, extraction industries. Um, they were, they were um, involved in merchant and shipping um, industries. So they, re they all represented um, business interests that would profit from continued dispossession and continued confinement on reservations. Um, I think that the, these men become policy advocates in a way that maybe it wasn't envisioned that they would to begin with. One of these men, um, a, a man named William Welsh um, from Philadelphia, uh, becomes uh, he, who, who um, his own backstory is a, he is a, an Episcopal layman, um, a philanthropist in the Philadelphia area, um, but, but comes to believe um, that educated uh, Christian uh, white men know what is better for Native communities than Native people do themselves, um, and, and works against many of the ideas that Parker and his uh, activists, his reformers, um, are trying to establish in the early peace policy era. So what's interesting uh, and tragically ironic, of course, that you point out is that much of what Parker did accomplish uh, before he's ousted uh, in making bureaucracy more efficient uh, actually facilitated um, the smoother functioning of dispossession when uh, the the policy ideas of William Welsh and others like him uh, become uh, supreme again after his tenure. Um, it's sort of a tragic irony. Right. Well, so, so just to be clear, the, 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 the alternative policies that Parker's advocating, um, it involves several things. First, he believed that the Office of Indian Affairs was corrupt and mismanaged, which I think most everybody believed in the 1850s and 60s and, and, and beyond into the 70s and 80s and you know, and beyond. Um, but so, so he, he worked to make the Office of Indian Affairs run more efficiently. Um, he advocated, actually, he was one of the advocates of what became known as the transfer debate, transferring the Office of Indian Affairs from the Interior Department, which is where it had been uh, seated since the 18, late 1840s. Initially, it had been in the War Department. He advocated transferring it back to the War Department. In the, much of the existing literature, the, the argument is made that, um, that various proponents of this transfer um, did so because it would facilitate military action. Um, I think that Parker's different from these other advocates. I think that Parker saw the War Department as the most uh, developed bureaucratic agency in the federal government following the Civil War. Um, the Civil War, of course, it, the, the, it, to carry out the Civil War, um, the North has to develop the War Department bureaucratically. It's a much, much bigger um, agency after the war than it was before. Um, and, it, and it does ma many things very well. 
during the war itself. I think that Parker understood that, particularly because he worked really less as a soldier and more as a military bureaucrat during the war. Hmm. When Parker advocates for the transfer, it's because he sees it as a way to help bureaucratize um, and, and make more efficient the Office of Indian Affairs. Um, he also uh, advocates what, what he describes as feeding versus fighting. Um, he essentially uh, argues that the, that the treaties must be upheld to the absolute letter in which they're written, um, that the, the, the kinds of factors that led to the Dakota War in 1862, um, the, the, the starvation and the, and the trauma and the horror um, going on in, uh, in Dakota communities, um, and, then, and then later at, at um, you know, the massacre at Sand Creek, um, really influenced Parker there. Um, and so he, he argues that the, that the military wouldn't, wouldn't need to take the kinds of actions that it did if Native communities were dealt with justly and honestly. Um, as part of that, he, he also argues that the, that, that, the um, that Native land ownership, that Indigenous land ownership needed to be clarified um, legally um, and that, that there needed to be um, additional uh, support um, legally for indigenous ownership. And what went along with that was the protection of sovereignty and sovereign rights. Um, finally, he saw oversight um, within the Office of Indian Affairs as a significant uh, oversight with an organization like the, the Board of Indian Commissioners to be incredibly important um, to, to make sure that the, that, the, um, that the goods and services that were being provided um, via treaties um, were uh, were good, uh, essentially, um, and that they were um, uh, that that there wasn't rotten food and, and other things being transported. Um, so these were the things that 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 he that he advocated for. Um, and I've completely forgotten your question. No, that's quite all right. I mean, it it, it gets at how he uh, made the office. Uh, a more efficient bureaucracy along the lines of what he had seen in the military. Uh, but I guess my question was when a different philosophy of Indian policy takes over from the office that he's helped make more efficient, that efficiency ends up facilitating um, yeah, yeah, the very yeah. policies he, he finds anathema. Right. Yeah. That, I think that that's exactly right. I think that that's one of the, one of, as you say, the tragic ironies of this, of this moment. Um, uh, Parker does these things as an effort to um, to slow down or stop dispossession, um, and and to uh, encourage others to reconsider um, the value of coercive assimilation. Um, Parker believed that given um, educational opportunities, um, employment opportunities, and, and things like that, that Native people um, would do as he had done, which is um, uh, you know work through uh, educational academies. Um, and and uh, he, he believed that, that Native people were fully capable of that, which is not true of, of many of his other contemporaries. Mm. Um, and, and so I think that, that that's what makes Parker really interesting in this moment. Um, this, of course, though, in the 1870s is, is, becomes problematic um, for advocates of westward expansion. Um, this is all premised on a much slower pace, um, a, a, a slower time frame, a time frame that, that's dictated by indigenous communities themselves, 
Um, and so advocates of westward expansion um, find this problematic. And I think that the, the Board of Indian Commissioners and William Welsh um, fit, in, fit in there. Um, but it does, I think, Parker's successes in cleaning up the Office of Indian Affairs in some ways. It's interesting because in his lifetime, Parker was, was accused of being in with the corrupt factions of the Indian ring and things like that, that he was facilitating um, the, the, the corruption. Uh, of course, I, that, that was part of the, 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 the political tactics of his opponents to repress those alternatives um, that he was advocating. So, but ultimately, allotment is, is, isn't possible without an incredibly well-developed bureaucracy. Phil Deloria writes about this, that it's, it's about um, uh, being able to locate people in, in space and time. Um, you know, the, and, and all the things that go along with that, the, the things like the Dawes rolls, the renaming people, um, uh, monitoring every single expenditure on a, uh, within an indigenous community, everything from, you know, the, the, the materials to build a, a, a shed or a barn to a hammer or a pair of shoes. That's only possible with an incredibly well-developed bureaucratic structure. Um, and it's in, and it's during Parker's term, his short term as commissioner, that those things happen. Hmm. And so he's he eventually steps down. Uh, he's not actually convicted of any or or found guilty of any of the accusations of corruption, uh, but he's nonetheless uh, he nonetheless steps out of office in 1871, which uh, is also a pretty dramatic year uh, in the shifting of Indian policy. Uh, it's the year that Congress unilaterally ended the treaty-making regime with indigenous nations. It's the moment that Kevin Bernil in his book talks about the shift to post-colonial time. Are these moments linked at all for you? I mean, are they coming out? They're coming out of the same Congress, obviously. Are they coming out of similar impulses, the desire to end treaty-making and also get rid of someone like Parker who might propose viable alternatives? I think that I, I think that they are uh, uh, absolutely. These things aren't happening in a vacuum. Um, I think that what what's interesting and and so I, I want to take up a couple of sep separate but related issues here. One of the things, one of the ways in which Parker has been written about that that I find troubling um, is Parker advocated the end of treaty making as well, um, and uh, I think that in the existing in much of the existing literature that's seen as a betrayal. Um, uh, on Parker's part. Um, if you read what Parker wrote about treaty making, I think that it, that he conceptualized it differently. Um, he saw he saw the treaty making process um, as one that that was where the deck was stacked completely in favor of the United States and not at all in favor of the indigenous communities. Um, when these groups sat down to negotiate a treaty, the, 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 the negotiating table was not level. Um, and that while the United States had the, the full access to its incredibly well-developed military um, to enforce its part of the, the, the treaty, um, indigenous communities couldn't and didn't. You have this quote from him. These things are like the handle to a jug. The advantages and the power of execution are all on one side. I mean, it is. It is a much more nuanced appreciation of treaties than you would get from somebody who just said it's absurd to make treaties with Indians. That wasn't his tack necessarily. Yeah. 
Yeah, and you know, and and so this is one of the ways. This is one of the ways that that. Uh, thank you for for that quote. Yeah, that's exactly how he thought about it. Um, so so Parker, um, you know, I mean, this is part of why he was a a, a controversial. This part is part of why he's a controversial character. Um, you know, but he did think about these things in I think more complex ways. Um, Parker's ultimately um, ousted. Um, I think he, he's, as you said, he is investigated. There's a hearing in the House of Representatives. Um, William Welsh um, brings Parker, brings charges against Parker of uh, mismanagement and corruption. The House of Representatives Committee on Appropriations hears testimony from dozens of people, um, contractors, members of the Board of Indian Commissioners, Parker himself, William Welsh, and others, um, and ultimately finds. Uh, what they call irregularities, but nothing that would um, suggest that Parker benefited or profited um, in, in any way. Um, interestingly, and again, I've, 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 I've tried to read every single piece of Parker's writing that I could get my hands on um, in, in archives um, and libraries uh, across the country. Um, this stuff is really spread out. Um, and and there's, this, there's this moment when, during, the, during and immediately after um, you know, the, the, the charges are in, in December of 1870. The, tri the hearing in the House of Representatives happens early in 1871. Parker does not resign immediately. He stays on for a period of time, and yet the, the correspondence between members of the Board of Indian Commissioners, William Welsh and Parker, um, you get the sense that Parker was a was a, a beaten man. He was he was uh, he loses his 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 willingness to continue fighting. Uh, against these other men who were working hard to repress his ideas, I think that he comes in to the to the office of Indian Affairs on a, a wave of optimism, and there's this active repression on the part of these other individuals to his ideas, to the point where um, he really the tone of his writing um, is essentially um, uh, is, is that of a of a man who's fatigued and essentially worn out and 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 repressed, basically. Mm. Interestingly, if you read at the same exact time that, that this is going on, if you look at the congressional record and the debates that are going on, um, Senate debates over Indian appropriations and other things, the language that other senators are using um, to describe Native communities um, and federal policy, it's, it's, it's really incredible. Um, you know, uh, I, I'm, 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 I'm thinking here of um, Senator Tipton. For example, um, who was a, a Republican senator from Nebraska, um, he said that the that the reforms of Parker's um, uh, of Parker's era of the late 1860s and early 1870s had been a failure. And I actually want to read you this quote because I think the language um, gives you a, a sense of, of exactly what these men were saying. Um, he said, "You say that Quaker policy is a success, and the Quaker policy was essentially the." The, the the shift in Indian affairs. It was the using um, Quakers as agents, um, but it also sort of fits in with larger Reconstruction policy in that it's a melding, it's a public and private um, way of, of administering policy. And you see that in Reconstruction at the same time. Part of my larger goal here is to um, look at uh, the Reconstruction era in a more um, I guess in a more holistic way, or to, to look at the ways in which federal Indian affairs and Reconstruction policies are connected. Mm -hmm. um, so, Senator, uh, 
uh, Senator Tipton says, you say that Quaker policy is a success and the only way to keep the peace is to feed and feed and feed and let one portion of this country work and work and work and toil in order that your agents may go and feed and feed and feed to save the lives of the rest of the population. Um, then he goes on to say, the system is rotten, the system is false, the system can no longer be maintained or endured. The only wise Indian policy, he said, would be to place Indian people on, and again, these are his words, reservations guarded around by bayonets, reservations over the limits of which Indians shall not pass, reservations with walls as high as necessary, and with pitfalls as deep as necessary. Concentration camps, essentially, I mean. Sorry, go ahead. He's, he's proposing concentration camps for Indians. These are the men with whom Parker was, was fighting. Yeah. Um, and, and, and furthermore... These were the men who are, who are understood in the literature as humanitarian reformers. Mm -hmm. these, are, these are not military leaders. These are the humanitarian leaders. Um, and this is what they're saying. Um, and, and, and if you read further in, into um, the, these Senate debates and, and other things, these, 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 this is not a, an isolated statement. Um, <clears throat> the resonance... Uh, <laughs> I, and I and I don't want to be presentist in any way, but the resonance of this um, makers and takers. I I wrote next to it the forty seven percent percent, but um. So so these were the individuals that Parker was up against in this moment, um, and uh, I think that the the repression of his ideas. You know, there were there were several um, former abolitionists and others who had worked. Um, uh, to fight against slavery, who found their way into Indian affairs during Parker's uh, term as commissioner. Um, they were working in the same sorts of ways, and they were confronting these individuals as well. Um, ultimately, um, uh, in the aftermath of this hearing, uh, Welsh, uh, Welsh and the Board of Indian Commissioners successfully destabilized Parker's position, mm. position of those other reformers. Um, Parker ultimately resigns. Um, he says that he, would, he could no longer... Um, uh, he could no longer maintain his position, which had become that of a clerk to a board of Indian commissioners. He said that the office of commissioner of Indian affairs had become that of clerk of the board of Indian commissioners. Um, and that the board of Indian commissioners was operating wholly and outside of and independent of um, the office of Indian affairs. Um, and so this is, this is a, a, you know, I think a significant moment, as, as you say, Individuals like this Senator Tipton are those who are advocating the end of treaty making for reasons that are unlike Parker's, I think. Mm -hmm. The fact that it happens at the same time, I, I think, you know, Parker's ouster and, and, and the, um, the, the rider that ends uh, treaty making, um, I think that they are connected. I think that, they're, I think that it's more complex than that, though, and that's what I hope I was able to, to describe there. Before we, we leave uh, Parker... I just want to read the quote that you start the first, the, first, the quote that opens the fifth chapter. It's a letter that he wrote to Harriet Converse in 1885. He writes, I have little or no faith in the American Christian civilization methods of healing the Indians of this country. It has not been honest, pure, or sincere. Black deception, damnable frauds, and persistent oppression has been its characteristics, and its religion today is that the only good Indian is a dead one. Those are pretty stark comments from the former top official of federal <laughs> Indian policy only a decade and a half earlier. Why do you make sense of the legacy of Parker? 
Yeah, I mean, Parker, so Parker's one of these guys who, who goes on, I mean, if, you, if, if I were to actually sit down and lay out his full career um, across the 19th century, I mean, it's, it's incredible. He ends his career um, living in, in, he ends his life living in um, New York City, working for the New York City Police Department as a clerk, um, and he hanging out with Jacob Rees and um, Theodore Roosevelt, um, or interacting with them anyway. Um, Jacob Rees wrote about Parker. Wow, um, I didn't know that. Yeah, but he, he, he maintains, um, he maintains uh, a connection to, to policymaking. I mean, he, he follows it, he watches it. There are these incredible scrapbooks that he kept um, during his life. They're actually held at the Newberry Library. Um, I think there, there are six or eight of them. Um, and it's clear that he that he 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 clipped or had clipped. There were services that did this. Um, uh, newspaper articles, rela- anything relating to Indian affairs, um, he would occasionally write a little comment here or there in the margins. Um, he, uh, and you know, he, I think that he sees this uh, this movement from Welsh and the Board of Indian Commissioners into the Friends of the Indian um, as uh, hugely problematic. Um, you know, I, this is what he was fighting against. Um, you know, the, the, the speed with which allotment envisions, um, assimilation is something that Parker would have had a huge, huge problem with and did. I mean, I think that that's the, the, um, that's the, the, the context in which he wrote that letter, um, to Harriet Converse. Mm. So, I've taken up a lot of your time already today, and uh, but I do want to talk about uh, some of these other reformers that uh, you mentioned in the later chapters of this book. Just as a way of introducing them, I, I love this story of, of Alfred B. Meacham, who is uh, Thomas Bland's mentor of sorts when it comes to Indian affairs. Thomas Bland is the, the focus of one of your chapters here. Meacham is shot four times and partially scalped by a group of, of frustrated and, and desperate Modoc men. But after convalescing, he goes right back out on the lecture circuit, uh, defending Modoc sovereignty. Uh, and you know, and he, it's Thomas Bland sees one of his speeches and ends up uh, forming the association that you talk about. Talk about these men, these non-native men. Uh, like Thomas Bland, like Alfred B. Meacham, in this period after Parker's moments, and what sort of alternatives they proposed. You know, it's interesting. I, I wish that I would have spent more time um, thinking about Alfred Meacham, um, and, and uh, he's, a, he's essentially a bridge character for me because Meacham was um, involved in the Office of Indian Affairs um, during Parker's tenure. Um, he was a, an agent. Um, he was a, a an adherent, a uh, strict, a firm adherent to the peace policy and the tenets of the peace policy, as Parker had envisioned them earlier. Um, he becomes uh, Bland's, as you say, mentor in a lot of ways. And so for me, he was kind of a bridge character. There are others who have done a lot more and who are doing a lot more really interesting work on Meacham and um, uh, uh, Boyd Cothran at, at York University um, writes incredibly interestingly about um, Alfred Meacham and his in his work. Um, you know, for, for, for Bland's part, Bland was in many ways more radical than Parker was. Um, Bland was a, a populist, um, a kind of a proto-populist and then a populist. Um, he uh, was an opponent of um, banking. He was an opponent of monopolies. He, he, he feared um, large combinations of power um, and wealth. And, 
initially he was he he was not particularly interested in indigenous um, issues. It's through Meacham that he becomes interested, um, and and Thomas and his wife Cora, who's an equally if not more interesting person. Cora Bland was um, a physician in the 1880s when you know when when I, I can't imagine there were almost any other female physicians. Um, she was a, a an editor in chief. Of, of magazines and newspapers in her own right, um, and they both became policy advocates and, and designed this um, uh, or, or founded this um, National Indian Defense Association. Um, they found the organization in 1885 uh, and and ultimately um, used used their platform and and this newspaper that they published in Washington D.C. called the Council Fire to fight against the Friends of the Indian and the Indian Rights Association. Um, they're they're initially sort of allied together. Um, Bland exists in the in the current literature and the existing literature as a footnote in most people's work. Um, he's an eccentric outlier. He's a he's a you know a troublemaker who never really amounted to to much. Um, if you actually go back and look at the um, the size of his organization it was larger than the Indian Rights Association um, at the at the time that um, of, that the Dawes Act is passed um, he carried he he had a a lot of supporters he he has um, part something that I argue briefly in the book is that there are 137 reels of Indian Rights Association papers on microfilm Matthew Sniffen their clerk kept everything he was a meticulous organizer Thomas Bland has no papers anywhere the only we know what we know about him is from his published work, um, the books that he published, and his newspaper. Um, I think that the 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 effectiveness with which the Indian Rights Association um, and uh, the, the the effectiveness with with which they were able to um, manipulate the story in the newspapers um, and the effectiveness of their record keeping has allowed scholars to to investigate their side of this debate. Um, and I think that's really shaped the literature. I think that that's why we don't know as much as uh, as much as we do about the National Indian Defense Association as we do the Indian Rights Association. Mm. Makes sense? Absolutely. Um, well, I was going to say Bland. Bland argues firmly against allotment. Um, he he has several different kinds of arguments that he makes against allotment, um, but he he champions um, sovereignty. Again, um, he champions treaty rights, and um, he is he is unwilling to consider uh, that allotment is in any way um, a, a, a a beneficial direction of Indian affairs. Mm. So I've been speaking with Joseph Jenison Pillawa, author of Crooked Paths to Allotment: The Fight Over Federal Indian Policy After the Civil War, from the University of North Carolina Press. I have a, a few broader questions I'd like to ask you. Uh, as we get to the, the last part of this interview. So, you know, Thomas Bland is ultimately not successful. Allotment passes uh, and wreaks havoc on, on Indian communal landholding, on, on Indian sovereignty. Theodore Roosevelt calls it the mighty pulverizing engine that breaks up the tribal mass. Parker as well. I mean, he had some successes, but ultimately he was ousted. Why focus on these characters? What is it about these people and these debates, uh, which, you know, we should admit were ultimately limited, uh, if not totally unsuccessful in terms of winning the biggest issues of the day. Why are they the subject of study? Why are they so important to reckon with? I think for a couple of things, they, um, first of all, I'm, I've been interested in, 
um, historical contingencies. Um, I've been interested in, um, you know, paths not taken, um, this idea that it could have gone differently, um, and also how we might learn from the strategies um, and arguments made by those who, who as you say, who lost. Um, I think that they, they force us out of some of our um, more, I guess, uh, out of some of the, the categorization of, of the existing literature. It forces us to think differently about some individuals. It forces us to think differently about these time periods. I think that the mid to late 19th century, um, if, you, if you were to ask uh, a, 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 a scholar of 19th century U.S. history to, to describe or define the, the, um, the debates in Indian affairs, they would talk about the military versus humanitarian reformers. Essentially, right. That's right. There's a layer of complexity to that. That's more reflective of what that time period was like. Um, I think that there there are other scholars. Glenda Gilmore comes to mind. Robin Kelly, um, Maureen Flanagan, who look at individuals who lost, but yet elements of their ideas continue on. Um, I think that that is an important um, framework here. Ultimately, the the work that Parker did and the work that Thomas Blaine did, I think, influence um, John Collier, um, and I think that it's about the context. Um, I think that the context of the early Reconstruction period, the context of the early sort of Gilded Age period, the 18, late 1870s and early 1880s, and then the context of um, the Great Depression are in some ways similar, but in some ways vastly different. Um, and, and it is during that, that last context, during the Great Depression, when I think, you know, uh, Collier is able to be successful making some of the same kinds of arguments that both Parker and Bland had made previously. Mm. How do you hope this book might uh, impact how we teach uh, to, to broader survey courses? And, and I, I talked to you a bit in, I think, in the pre-interview about how when I, you know, I'm a teaching assistant for a second half U.S. history survey courses. And we when we get our, our one day on Indians, it's it's the inevitable march to allotment and assimilation. And then maybe if they show up again, it's in the Red Power Movement. But it's uh, it's not much other than that. How do you hope that this story uh, might shift the way we teach and talk about uh, this moment in Indian history? Yeah, I think that there are a couple of things there, and, and, and I appreciate you asking that question. Um, one of the things that I've tried to do is to, um, to, to highlight some of the connections um, between the, the broader reform movements um, of these different periods and what was going on in Indian affairs. I think there's a couple ways, a couple reasons to do that. Um, Heather Cox Richardson has made this really important, great argument in her book West from Appomattox that if um, if we were to be transported back to the the late 19th century, people at that moment wouldn't have separated in their minds things that were going on in the West and things that were going on in the South. It was all of a moment, mm. um, and that to do so in our scholarship doesn't make sense. Um, if if I can even gesture towards reintegrating those things so that we look at the broader picture and how these things were connected. So reconstruction policies and the early peace policy, for example, um, how some of those things were connected, I think, helps to to um, broaden our understanding and, and give us a more sophisticated um, and nuanced understanding of the period. I also think that some of the things that were going on, um, some of the techniques of reformers in Indian affairs, were some of the techniques were tried first in Indian affairs, then then made their way into other other um, policy areas and other social reform and things like that. Um, the, the, the employing full-time lobbyists, um, you know, having a, a communications arm 
um, that's that's writing pamphlets and putting pamphlets in the hands of congressmen and things like that day in and day out. Um, some of these techniques are then picked up by other kinds of social reformers and activists and used later on. These ideas happened first, though, in the Office of Indian Affairs and and in um, and in and in in um, federal policy, federal Indian policy reform. So I think that it it helps to to make us uh, maybe think a little bit differently about the history of social and political reform in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important too. Um, I think at, in the end, I think. Um, the, the, the largest point is that to study the 19th century um, without taking very seriously the indigenous experience is a bankrupt project. Um, I think that that, that, that kind of <laughs> summarizes that you can't understand these periods without understanding um, how significant and central the indigenous experience and um, indigenous uh, Indian affairs were. Mm. So before I let you go, and I just want to say I, I, I appreciate that project so much that people like yourself and Kathleen Cahill are doing and other folks are doing in this period. Uh, it, it's so important because you get so many studies of the development of the American state uh, in this moment as if uh, as if there were there wasn't a massive federal bureaucracy, really the first of its kind, dealing uh, with people whose who are treated in, in sort of law and discourse in a way that are, are that later translates to immigrants and other and other people in the early 20th century. There are some great studies about that moment in the early 20th century, but it's as if all this debate and uh, development hadn't happened with Indian people in the 19th century. So I think it's a great project that you're engaged in more broadly. Well, I really appreciate that. Yeah. So before I let you go. Uh, I know this book just came out and you have young kids and there's plenty on your plate and you're uh, professor and all of that, but uh, I, I know you're thinking about something next, and I, I just want to know what's what's in the pipeline and, and what you're thinking about uh, tackling uh, next. Yeah, well, there's two things. Um, I I have um, an edited collection that I've been working on with a um, with a friend of mine um, that is uh, it's currently under an advanced contract, but it's it's going through the review process right now called um, Beyond Two Worlds. Critical Conversations on, on Language and Power in Native North America. Um, and essentially that takes up this trope, this idea of um, indigenous people straddling two worlds or trying to exist in two worlds. Um, and it, it takes it up, uh, questions it in both um, popular culture and academic scholarship. And we've got, a, I think, a great volume of, of essays um, that will hopefully work its way through the review process uh, quickly. Um, my other project that I'm working on currently is a, a, a monograph project tentatively called The Indian's Capital City. Um, I was influenced um, doing this first book, thinking about the time that Parker spent in that Ely Parker spent in Washington, D.C. Um, in the 1840s and 1850s and 1860s, um, and thinking about what that experience must have been like for an indigenous man, for an indigenous leader, um, to be in the capital as the artwork of the capital building itself um, was was being installed. These reliefs and statues and paintings, all of which tell a story um, and commemorate a story of a conquest completed or the vanishing Indian. And yet Parker was by no means alone. There were dozens and hundreds of indigenous delegations and visitors coming into the capital constantly. Um, so, so the project... Um, looks at the tensions between the commemorative and lived indigenous landscape of the capital. That sounds fascinating. Uh, 
and I, I know it's probably a long ways off still, but I cannot wait, uh, and I hope to have both books uh, featured on this podcast uh, when they do make their way uh, out. So, uh, Joe, Jonathan, Palawa, thank you so much uh, for joining me today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you again, Andrew. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to an interview with Joseph Jeniton Palawa, author of Crooked Paths to Allotment, The Fight Over Federal Indian Policy After the Civil War, just out from the University of North Carolina Press. You can find us on the web at newbooksandnativeamericanstudies.com, where you can listen to all the past interviews free of charge, or on iTunes, where you can download the podcast. We're also on Facebook, where you can leave comments, questions, or suggestions for new books you'd like to hear on this program. Stay tuned for upcoming interviews with Linford Fisher on The Great Indian Awakening, Scott Berg's 38 Nooses, and Jim Poling's Smoke Signals, plus many more in the new year. For the New Books Network, I'm Andrew Epstein. Thanks for listening.